Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Good morning. I I told a few different people this morning that as intimidating as this room is, you guys are easy to preach to because I know that you're rooting for us. So we're going to continue our series on uncommon faith in the book of Matthew this morning. We're going to continue talking about hospitality and invitation. Um, But I wanted to take a moment to give you a, a short recap of General Assembly. So if you don't know, every four years, the Church of the Nazarene gathers delegates from all parts of the world, and we worship, and we pray, and we do kind of the administrative work of the church um, to move us forward. And a few months ago, because of the sort of polarized climate that we're living in, the Board of General Superintendents, which is the six people kind of at the um, top of the food chain, I guess. And um, they they issued a call for us to pray for General Assembly that we would be unified, even in our diversity. Um, Aaron and I had the opportunity to go, and I am surprised and delighted to report that actually it really did feel that way. Um, we came to together and we discussed some really important issues, and we tweaked our language to be more loving and hospitable. And it was an incredible honor to just be in the room when it happened. And we worked to elect two new general superintendents. So just to kind of give you a background on this, four years ago, we also needed to elect two new general superintendents. And it took us four days and 55 ballots to agree on who we wanted. Um, It was contentious, and it um, felt very different from this past two-week period. And I um, was thrilled by the unity of the delegates and how much they wanted us to get back to our roots of love and hospitality and holiness. And in just 11 ballots, we elected Dr. Philly Chombo from Africa and Dr. Carla Sundberg, a woman, which I'm very, very excited about. Only our second woman, GS, um, yet affirming our call as a denomination to support women in ministry. So I'm really, really excited about it. Um, But the best part for me was hanging out with young pastors. So we have kind of created a culture of young pastors showing up. We've spent a year um, doing a project we're calling Young Clergy Network, and we've spent a lot of our time creating podcasts and resources and really just encouraging young pastors to be a part of the discussions. Um, I actually only had one friend who was a young pastor who was also a delegate. So we did a few different things this year to really help people want to come even though they weren't delegates. Um, Besides the awesome business meetings, they got to come to two young clergy meetups. So we, Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene, hosted two meetups in Indianapolis during the meetings. And over 350 young pastors came to these meetups. And I can't... Whoa, 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 whoa. There were about 900 delegates at General Assembly, and there were more than 300 young pastors who were not delegates who came to General Assembly to these meetups. Yeah, that, that's, that's important that's math true. to understand. 
And y'all are a part of that. You have supported that. And um, yeah. Britt and Pastor Jason in particular, you are a part of a much bigger movement within our whole denomination. These were not just pastors that look like us. These were pastors from one, two, three, four continents off the top of my head yeah. who came together for these times of fellowship, encouragement, prayer, uh, and hearing from our regional and denominational leaders. Yeah, and I heard from more than one person, man, your church really must be serious about this hospitality thing because you guys have created so much space for these young pastors to believe in themselves and in the future of our church and be a part of what's happening. So in addition to the meetups, we got on Airbnb and got a little creative and um, we put these, together these two young houses, young clergy houses, essentially. I don't know if you've heard, but hotel rooms in convention center areas in the middle of conventions are a little steep for young clergy. So we heard about a lot of people who wanted to come to General Assembly, but housing was the biggest issue. And so just by renting out these two Airbnb houses and um, bringing some air mattresses and telling everybody to be super flexible, um, we housed over 30 young clergy there in downtown Indianapolis, less than a half mile from the venue. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity that Aaron and I have to lead this project, to be a part of this ministry. You know, um, actually Pastor Jason's a huge part of it too, but he's on sabbatical, so um, you'll have to you have to wait to thank him later. He did go to General Assembly, though. Send him a note. He loves notes. Right. And we just had so much great feedback from people over and over and over thanking us for the work that our local church is doing to the wider denomination at places like General Assembly. So thank you for making things like that possible. Speaking of hospitality and inclusion and welcome and making those things possible, that kind of uh, brings us to today's text. We've been talking for several weeks now about the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be spending this period leading up to Advent, ordinary time, walking through further and further into the book. Now, we've said a lot of things about Matthew already, probably written between 70 and 110 of the Common Era probably by a second-generation believer who was really inspired by the writings of the Apostle Matthew. The book of Matthew was meant to be read aloud. It's one big, long story, one long narrative. It was designed to help a new generation of believers remember who Jesus was, both the human Son of Man and the divine Son of God. And so, from the sort of family history, the genealogy of Jesus that begins in Matthew chapter 1, all the way through to the final instructions to Christ's disciples, what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, we get the sense over and over and over again that God is up to something, that this is a fresh outbreaking of the kingdom. And that God intends to partner with humans, with all of us, to bring it about. Now, the author of the book of Matthew is also really concerned about emphasizing the Jewishness of Jesus. Jesus as Jewish Messiah. Which makes sense when we remember that the book was written at a time when the... Well, a couple of different things are going on. 
First, virtually all of the Jewish religious establishment had been wiped out brutally, murderously, eliminated from the earth by Rome. And the Christian church itself was becoming more geographically scattered and increasingly Gentile. And we see these concerns illustrated in Matthew chapter 11, where we take our text from, in both John the Baptist and the crowds who are surrounding Jesus seem to question his messianic identity. In verses 4 through 6, Jesus sort of reassures John's disciples. And he says, go and tell John what you see, what you hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. In other words, it seems that Jesus was not always quite who his cousin John, who, to be fair, was imprisoned and about to be decapitated, expected Christ to be. Later on in chapter 11, in 18 and 19, Christ also seems to be exasperated by the Jewish crowds who rejected both John the Baptist and himself, although for very different reasons. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, Jesus was definitely not who the religious establishment expected their Messiah to be. The Pharisees and teachers of the law especially had a hard time recognizing God at work in the ministries of John and Jesus because it didn't fit in with their religious culture. I don't know if you know much about Pharisees, but they often get a bad rap. Over and over again, Jesus finds himself at odds with how things are done among the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But, to be fair, it was a sect of Jewish people just trying to be the best they could be. They were trying to follow the law. They were trying to help others do the same. But here's the problem. By the time Jesus came on the scene, they had immersed themselves in a toxic culture of pride and perfectionism. They felt that they were the most correct law followers there were, and who wouldn't have a little pride when coming to that realization? At times, they were judgmental. At times, they were demanding. But the Pharisees were pretty sure they had it all figured out. As a result, they were super frustrated when Jesus broke the rules in the name of love. He touched people he wasn't supposed to touch. He ate with people he wasn't supposed to associate with. And he healed people at all the wrong times. Christ went to great lengths to be love and hospitality to the outcasts and the overlooked, even when it got him in trouble with the legal and religious authorities. Which brings us to the verses for today. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. As it turns out, it's entirely possible to study scripture without actually knowing God. In fact, Many of these Pharisees and teachers of the law had managed to do just that 
these wise and intelligent members of Jewish society had completely missed the point of the Torah, which commanded a love for God and for others above all else. In this passage, Jesus says that relationship with God is not just reserved for well-behaved religious and political elites. Instead, the kingdom of God is made available even to us, ordinary folks, even those of us who don't know all the rules, much less follow them. But we can still begin to know God and each other more through close relationships. And the truth is, those wealthy and influential leaders largely rejected Jesus. Many well-educated Pharisees and teachers of the law refused to accept Christ or his subversively inclusive message. All while outsiders, like tax collectors and marginalized women and even children, chose to follow him. Picking back up with verse 27, all these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone, and anyone, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In contrast to many of the religious and political leaders of the time, Jesus alone was in a position, again, God in Christ, Emmanuel, the God who comes to us, Jesus alone was in a position to declare this is exactly what God is like. And so, who does the Son choose to reveal the Father to? Everyone. Thanks be to God. But, as Christ points out seven different times in the Gospels, we must also have eyes to see and ears to hear. We must be on the lookout for ways in which the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is inviting us to participate in a divine relational community with God, and with each other. This call, this mystery, this revelation of who God is in Christ all reminds me of a really famous painting. Uh, it's a 15th century Russian icon called The Hospitality of Abraham. It's by uh, an artist named Andrei Rublev, and it's sometimes just simply referred to as the Trinity. There's more going on than meets the eye. In it, Rublev has depicted God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the context of God's visit to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Now, there are a lot of things to notice here, and I'm an historian who minored in art, so trust me, I could talk about this all day long, but I won't. But there are a few things that I really want to draw your attention to. The first is that God is depicted here in community. 
three figures seated in a circle, sharing a common table, sharing a common cup. This is the kind of equality and mutuality and relationality that we are called to model as the community of faith. Second, notice that even though they're sitting together, Christ is reaching for the chalice, for the common cup, which represents his own blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Here, Rubloff reminds us that our very invitation into relationship with God has come at the great cost of God's own sacrificial, suffering love. Third, uh, you may have noticed already this small sort of discolored triangle at the base of the table. Uh, remnants of glue that are left on the painting suggest to many art historians who now believe that there used to be a mirror glued there. A mirror, maybe added by Rubloff, maybe added later by someone else, that was designed as a powerful visual reminder to everyone who viewed this masterpiece that we, too, are invited to participate with God in relationship. In this radical model of divine hospitality, we are all invited. And that brings us to the invitation in these last few verses. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you know what a yoke is? There's some kids in the room. Maybe you don't. That's okay. I look things up on Google all the time. That's, Just the, ask uh, my that's the dark part of the egg. Right? No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, I guess technically it is. A different yoke. That's got an L in it. Oh, it's got an L. Okay, right. right. Sorry. And no, we're back. This is not a <laughs> This is not a yoke, it's a yoke. This is a yoke. Right. right. Here. So it's this curved kind of piece of wood used to hold two load-bearing animals together. Um, as a metaphor, a yoke is heaviness or the binding together of two people. And in fact, the teachers of the Torah spoke of the law and the yoke of the law, the heavy burden of the many commandments that needed to be learned, remembered, followed, and even properly repented of when they were broken. These verses offhand to me seem a little confusing because other places it seems like Jesus asks a lot of people, right? I mean, take up your cross and follow me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I find myself thinking, uh, Jesus, um, this message that you're proclaiming about being all in and loving your enemies and everything, it doesn't sound easy and restful to me. And in fact, you could think of it as Jesus' way of life being even more difficult because he's calling his followers to follow the law with their hearts and not just with their actions. But I think the truth here is in the contrast. The Pharisees have made religion so difficult that perhaps they themselves are the only ones who can pull it off. The average person was sure to break some rules. The yoke of the law was one of rules, regulation, and religious obligation, and for sure it was possible to do all of these things without love. 
And in the last verse, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You might be surprised to know that even 2,000 years ago, a light burden of ease and rest was a countercultural message in the Jewish community. The yoke of the law would later be described by the apostles as a burden that neither we nor our ancestors could bear. Later in Matthew, Jesus says of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads to put on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help move them. The scribes and teachers of the law made it so difficult, detailed, nuanced, that these things had become burdensome. But Jesus' yoke was different. He was much more interested in the spirit of God who animates the law than the perfect following of the rules. His yoke was one of grace, mercy, and intimate relationship. A bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is approached by a legal and religious expert who tries to trick him by asking what the greatest commandment in the Torah is. Jesus replies in maybe my favorite passage of scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus invites us to learn the way of love. Not just to follow the law of God, but to follow the example set by God himself, to follow the example of Christ. And that must have been incredibly good news to weary, hardworking, overburdened first-century Jews who had to live under the guidelines of really strict religious control and Roman military occupation. There must have been many times when they felt like no matter what, no matter how hard they tried, they would never measure up. But that's a 21st-century problem too, right? We all know people who are carrying heavy burdens. There are a lot of weary people in this city and in this neighborhood and in this room. We all know people, and sometimes we are the people who feel like we don't measure up who feel like they might be too far gone for God to love them. People who have been hurt or rejected or excluded by religious scorekeeping. People who say things like, I've already used up all of my second chances. Or, no church would ever accept me. Or, God could never love someone like me. The Pharisees also thought that the law demanded perfection in order to draw near to God. But Christ's burden is so much lighter than that. Real holiness, a perfect love for God and others, is born out of relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
In other words, the kind of holiness that loves everyone that God loves, that welcomes everyone that Christ welcomes, that invites everyone to come as they are, also invites us to come as we are and to be transformed by relationship with God and each other. But here's the problem. Those of us in this room, we're, we're all good church people, right? We don't drink, and we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. You better not. We know most of the religious rules, and we know how to play by them, or at least how to make it look like we're playing by them. But the trouble comes when someone walks through the doors who doesn't look like us. He might not know the rules. She might not know the songs. They might hate shaking hands during Pass the Peace. They might not know when to sit down or when to stand up or how to take communion exactly like we do. Or they might be so weary, so weighed down with heavy burdens or concerns about their own unworthiness that they could barely stagger in. So, let's ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Who are we? The gathered up people of God called OKC First Church, who are we going to be? Is our yoke easy? Is our burden light? Will we welcome outsiders into our church, into our homes, and into a transformative relationship with God that starts right where they are, even if they're not just like us? My family moved um, from Tulsa to Oklahoma City in 2001. It was the summer between my junior, my sophomore and junior year of high school. And what you need to know about me is that I thought I had it all figured out. It was a firstborn with a guilty conscience and a strong sense of right and wrong. I once scolded my parents for having a double standard for watching rated R movies while also telling me that it was not okay. Sorry, mom and dad, I was a handful, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyway, came from an awesome Nazarene church family in Tulsa, and so I was hoping and praying that I could find that here. My family only visited a couple different churches, and I actually don't even remember which the other church was. But when we got here, we got here in time for Sunday school, and the high school class was still meeting kind of back where the children's worship center is now. This was a long time ago. <clears throat> And um, I was super nervous. I was so nervous. And I, all I really remember about that day was that when the greeter dropped me off at the high school Sunday school class, I was immediately surrounded by all the girls in the room. Hi, how are you? What's your name? How long are you here? Uh, the rest of my life. What are you doing on Tuesday nights? Do you want to come to our girls' Bible study? And just like that, within moments... I was invited 
And I said way louder and awkwardly than I meant to, you have a Bible study? Yes, I would love to come to that. And just like that, I was in. And I remember that Tuesday night. Um, it was at Mama Ellen's house, a place I had never been, where I felt like I knew no one. And if you have never been in the home of, of Ron and Ellen, you really got to go. because I, I totally had a flight of them, and then it disappeared. Oh. Just disappointing. It's all right. Uh, but they're, they're here. There. Yeah. Hi. So you can look at them later. Hi, McNeils. <laughs> um, and I was so nervous. Um, but as soon as I walked in, I immediately knew it was going to be okay. She and Ron loved on these high school girls so well. There were fresh chocolate chip cookies and places to sit and relax. And um, Kelly Mendorf was there. And that, to me, in that moment, was what I needed. That was hospitality. That's what it was to be invited. This church invited me into the fold at a time when I probably wasn't super easy to love. And when it, time, when it came time for the family vote where everybody wanted to go, it was no question in my mind where I was going to vote for OKC first. And it's not just back in the day. Um, this church is still practicing hospitality through so many different things. Our neighborhood empowered, open gym, celebrate recovery, an outpost. And I wonder how God might be calling each of us to get involved. It's my hope and prayer that everyone who walks through the doors of our church would feel loved by the hospitality of Christ without judgment, that they would feel welcome whether or not they fit in, whether or not they follow the rules, that they would feel invited into our lives and into our homes to come just as the way that they are and learn the way of Jesus. And maybe there's someone in your life or even in your pew that needs to be invited there are a lot of weary, heavy-laden people. We must be the Christians that say, as Jesus does, join us, all you who are weary and heavy-laden, and we will give you rest. May we be the people who invite those with heavy hearts to come and to be unburdened among us. And the good news is, God absolutely can and does empower and enable us to help ease one another's yokes and help bear one another's burdens. We are invited to the table so that we can invite others. We are welcomed so that we may welcome. We are included so that we may include but we also confess that we can't do it on our own. We must first be filled with the love of God in Christ, a love that is exemplified by his blessed, broken body in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We must be filled with the same spirit, with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. In a few minutes, we're going to come together to share in the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving of communion. And those of you who are going to help us serve, please come down now. As they come, let's pray together. Almighty God, pour out your spirit on those of us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Let them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, 
Make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Amen. Here at OKC First, we celebrate an open table. If you recognize that you need more of the transformative work of grace of God in your life, we invite you to come and eat and drink with us together at God's table. In order to accommodate as many folks as possible, the bread that we'll eat together is gluten-free. And from our earliest days, the Church of the Nazarene has made an effort to minister to those who struggle with alcohol addiction. And so for that reason, the juice that we'll drink together is non-alcoholic. There will be six stations, four in the front, two in the back. You'll exit your pews to the left, and you'll come, and you'll approach the two servers, and the first server will place a piece of bread into your cupped hands and say, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Then the second server will hold out the chalice, will hold out the juice for you and say, this is the blood of Christ, shed for you and you'll dip your bread into the cup that is offered. If you're not able to leave your seat, uh, Pastor Kristen and Caleb will be happy to come and administer the elements to you. After you've received the elements, these altars are always, always, and we've done a great job of saying that today, always open for prayer. The outside altars are especially reserved for those of us uh, for prayers in need of healing. We believe in that, physical, emotional, spiritual healing, come, someone will meet with you and pray with you and anoint you with oil for healing. Please know that no matter where you pray, you will not pray alone. Someone from the church will meet you here, but most importantly, God will meet you here. We promise. There's also a baptismal font right up here in the center next to the communion table where we invite you after you've received the elements to come and pause and dip your fingers into the cool water. Let that help you remember your own baptism. Remember what it was like for you to join the family of faith to lay down your burdens and to take up Christ's easy yoke. And when we come, while you're waiting in line. After you've received the elements, if you come to the altar to pray, when you return to your seat, I invite you to think about these two questions. First, do you have faith that God's grace can really save you? Because God invites us, all of us, into relationships. Second, is the yoke of faith that we put on our enemies and our opposites and outsiders as light as Christ's? Because God graciously welcomes us, all of us, into community. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus shared one last Passover meal with his best friends. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he also took the common cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. And now, please join us in the Eucharist, in this great Thanksgiving, this shared meal at a communal table as we rehearse together the transformative presence of God in ourselves and in relationships with each other. Come.
will join me in lifting your eyes up and looking at the screen for the prayers of our children that they have prayed over this last month and join join them in praying them as well join me as we pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of our children. Thank you for their childlike faith. I'm so thankful, Lord, that we can learn from them how they trust you with all the details of their life. They choose to praise you, Lord, for all the ways that they see you at work and the good gifts that you have given to them. Help us, Lord, not to lose sight of all the good gifts that you have given us. May we have childlike eyes. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that um, as our children know you, Lord, as a good, compassionate God, who they can give all their cares and concerns to, Lord Jesus, may they continue to grow in that way, where they can lay their burdens down at your feet and you will give them rest. Help them, Lord, with their fears. Help them to overcome the um, struggles that they have. We all go through struggles, Lord. But may they be children that live in faith, knowing that you care about each and every difficult situation that we go through. Lord Jesus, may they find comfort in you. Lord Jesus, I think about uh, as we prepare to go to camp in just a few days, Lord Jesus, be with us. Watch over us, Lord Jesus. Take care of us. Give us traveling mercies. Keep us safe. And Lord, while we're there at camp, may you keep our hearts open to experience you through your word, through worship, and Lord, through our interactions with each other. May we be so aware of your presence with us. And Lord Jesus, now, as you taught your disciples to pray, we will pray using debt and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom 